everyone, and welcome to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. So today we are diving into the second Gates Family Mystery book. If you're new to season five of National Treasure Hunt, there is a prequel series of books for the National Treasure movies, and that's what we're talking about here today, as well as last episode, as well as two more episodes down the line. But guess what? We're doing all the reading and all the hard work and going through the books and the stories with you so you don't actually have to read them. Yeah, but you know, you honestly should because I think they're they're pretty entertaining. <laughs> no, for real. And despite the fact that they are kids' books, us uh, non-kids are enjoying them very oh, much. Oh, yeah. It just means I can read them really quickly, and which is good, because then my memory of them when we record the episodes is there, because combine that with my procrastination, and it means that I finished the book about an hour ago. Wow. Um, <laughs> well, if you, like Emily, would like to read these in a jiffy, today's book is called Midnight Ride. It's published by Disney Press and written by Katherine Hapka. And before we dive in, y'all know how we really have to introduce this episode, right? Uh, Yeah, but I'm gonna let you say it because you always say it. I do always say it. Welcome to our screams from Parkington Lane. This is our periodic recognition that, guess what? National treasure has not only seeped into our lives, it is our lives. Emily, are you standing at the bottom of the Parkington Lane pit with me tonight? I am for once. Yes. Well, wow. um, if, if, if that was any indication, Emily usually has to come up with these words. They really do pop up in my daily life. But tonight it actually happened for you, Em. It did. It actually happened for me this morning, which was amazing. There was another one that happened at another point in the week, but I forgot to write it down, so I don't remember it. But I did write down the one from this morning. Um, so on, I, I recently moved, so I, I have a longer commute now, but I take a slightly different way to work. And I, I work in Philadelphia, so I have to go through a little bit of the city. And today I happened to recognize that one of the buildings that I passed is actually a Freemasons Lodge. Um, it's called Prince Hall Grand Lodge. At least I'm pretty sure it's a Freemasons Lodge. It, it like has the symbol that I associate with the Freemasons, so I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, but Prince Hall Grand Lodge in Philadelphia uh, is is now something I pass every day on my way to work. So just got a little national treasure up in up in my life. And you'll never unsee it. I will not. <laughs> okay. Well, I have chosen a particular scream from back when we were entertaining the idea of reviewing these books on the show in the first place. And um, I don't know if you remember, we found out that these existed. We did a deep dive. We're like, oh my gosh, there's six books. Let's order them. We have no problem ordering the first four. And then all of a sudden, like the last two, like there's a title, there's a publication date, but there's no books. And, you know, we told you on the last episode that, that those last two books um, never ended up getting published. Well, we didn't tell you how we found that out. <laughs> <laughs> and herein lies my scream. So when we were trying to figure out, like, where are these books, um, I went on a little bit of a treasure hunt myself. I emailed Disney Press and was like, hey, um, you're supposed to have these books, like, where are they? And 
I wasn't really expecting to get a response, but I got a response from a lovely woman who basically was like, I searched our database and we have no record of those books ever existing. And I was like, huh, well, Wikipedia thinks otherwise, but okay. Um, so then I Googled the author, Catherine Hapka, found her on LinkedIn, messaged her. <laughs> and then I was like, well, what if she doesn't use LinkedIn? Found her on Twitter, messaged her. <laughs> Sliding into her DMs. Literally. And she replied. She was lovely. And she told me that basically she remembers having written the last two books, but she had no recollection of like whether they had gotten published. And she was saying how she has all the books that she's written on a bookshelf, like next to her. And um, the first four books were there and the last two weren't. So ultimately she did some digging, some research with her editor and whatnot and confirmed that they had never actually been published. We have no idea what happened or why they weren't published, but um, sounds like a little bit of a mystery, a Gates family mystery, if you will. But hey, as always, y'all, if you're listening in, if you're a National Treasure fan and National Treasure pops up in your daily life, please send us your screams from Parkington Lane. You, you, you can, can, can find, find, find us on Twitter and Instagram. We are there at NT Hunt Podcast. We are also available for your listening ears on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your pod medium. And we have a website now, in case you didn't hear in the last two episodes. Our website is nthuntpodcast.com. When you go to that website, you'll be able to find a bunch of information about us, including some beautifully, beautifully made tabs that tell you all about things from our book to our tour to the podcast itself. So if you can go ahead, like, subscribe, rate, review, do whatever you can on those various platforms and let us know that you are listening along with us. Tell us your thoughts on this second book, Midnight Ride, after we share ours with you. And boy, do we have thoughts so many thoughts um okay before we get started just a quick uh reminder that this four-part book series the gates family mystery series is um a kids book series about ben gates ancestors and their relationship with treasure hunts as emily just reminded us midnight ride is book number two in the series and while the first book took place in the time period of the jamestown colony today's book is focused really on the lead up to the american revolution so this immediately answers the question i posed at the end of last episode um i was like so excited because i was like oh we're gonna get the same characters just like through their lives more treasure hunts like nope not at all we get a totally different generation of gates family so i had to like get i had to get myself to buy into a whole new set of characters again and you know how i feel about that em i do you 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 have trouble with it i do um so what you're going to get out of this episode, we are basically going to proceed through the book story step by step while adding our own commentary about national treasure, about our opinions, et cetera, et cetera. There's going to be a lot to go through here. So um, buckle in. Yeah, buckle up. I mean, right off the bat, I personally need to give a shout out to Logan Dunbar. 
Um, Emily, you're probably wondering who Logan Dunbar is. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, yes, I am. Uh, Tell well, me. Honestly, in this case, you'd have no way of know knowing. Uh, Logan Dunbar was the previous owner of my copy of Midnight Ride. His name is um, written proudly in elementary school handwriting on the title page. That's so cute. Mine just has a little rip on the spine. That's really unfortunate. And anyway, do you have any um, immediate thoughts to share? About Logan? Sure. Please judge a child that you've never met before. <laughs> About the book? Uh, yeah, I have thoughts. Um, I feel like we'll get into them more as we kind of go through point by point. I, I, I have some, some big ones, but I kind of want to save them up, you know, for when we really get into the episode. I think overall... I would just like to remind everyone before we get started that as with the last book, both Aubrey and I really, really enjoyed this book. This series is a lot of fun to read and um, it's personally just a nice little break. It doesn't feel like work or anything. It's just very nice to read and it's nice to follow along with these characters and stuff like that. So while it is kind of our job to nitpick things and give you some commentary on them I would just like to note that overall these are just it was a really good book well that makes me worry about what we're about to say so let's dive right in um for context everyone the entirety of this book will pretty much take place over the year and a half leading up to the shot heard around the world that launched the American Revolution um though I will admit that this length of time wasn't totally clear to me until it was spelled out at the end of the book in that really awesome postscript section that outlines everything that was real in the book versus the things that were fake and based on your uh facial expressions Emily I'm guessing you totally missed that section I missed it last time too <laughs> way to bury the lead um yeah okay so that makes that that does help me with the context a little bit one of my one of my thoughts about the book was that the timing was a little all over the place for my attention span yeah uh. I see. So 200 plus pages does not accord with a year and a half of time for you. Not the way they were jumping around. All right. All right. Fair, fair we'd enough. Go from chapter to chapter and sometimes we'd be like six months later. That's actually very accurate. Um, it confused my, my small brain. Well, and for that reason, we see quite a bit of, I, I guess, um, intellectual and also just like personal growth for some of our characters because we meet John Raleigh Gates, our protagonist in Boston. At the beginning of the book, he is 16 years old in December of 1773. Now, this 16-year-old's job is to deliver mail basically around the New England area on horseback since, you know, no postal service existed at the time. Now, other key characters that we meet in the opening pages include Thomas Gates, which is John's dad, Liberty, John's favorite horse, and Alice, John's favorite sister. We also learn that John is particularly good with horses, and this is our first callback to book one in this series because this personality trait is said to have been inherited from Liz in book one. Liz was sort of our Abigail figure to our protagonist, you know? Yes, yes. And uh, I 
I did recognize who that was when it was said in the book. So I was really proud of myself. Good for you. There's a couple other familial uh, connections that are made throughout the book, mainly towards the beginning, um, that I was a little less certain of. Uh, Let me guess. Were you thinking that Thomas Gates, John's dad, was like the Thomas Gates that we meet at the beginning of National Treasure? No. So I will admit that I actually forgot the main character of our last book's name. Um, You thought John was Sam. Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, oh, this is actually like, we were a little concerned about like how much of a time jump they were going to do here. But like, this is great. And then later on, she's like, he's like my great, great grandfather, so-and-so. And I'm like, that's not even Sam. Like, you're not even talking about Sam. You're talking about like his son or something. Yeah, I don't know. It was hard for me to follow. Well, they are indeed related to Sam and Liz, who ended up being, we learn, Sam's wife, um, which is nice to know. I'm sure you appreciated that. But no, um, I would like to assure, I guess not you, but any of our listeners, that while Thomas Gates is a character in this book, and this book is happening around the time of the American Revolution, And while National Treasure's flashback scene begins with Thomas Gates helping Charles Carroll of Carrollton pass on the message of the secret lying with Charlotte, these are not the same Thomas Gates. Well, they are, in fact, relatives, but just think about this. The revolution hasn't happened yet at the start of this book when Thomas is like an adult, but Thomas Gates from National Treasure is a teenager many years later, as Charles Carroll is dying well after the revolution. Mm. Okay. So there's going to be another Thomas very soon down the line. Namesakes. We got a lot of that in this series. So John lives in Concord, but he happens to be in Boston on this day because he wants to sell some trinkets at a silversmith shop. Just so happens to be Paul Revere's silversmith shop. Um, And the reason for this is because his family is doing poorly on the financial side of the house. Now, we learn a little bit later that this is because the dad, Thomas, is a bit of a recluse puzzling over the wooden medallion passed down in the family from Sam and Liz back in book one. So sweet. And Thomas apparently really likes puzzles and treasure hunts and spends like an irresponsible amount of time on them. As opposed to like doing his actual job, which is working in a stable and harness, like they have a stable, they have a harness business. It's like a leather working shop. Um, now, apparently, this treasure hunting passion used to be a point of bonding between uh, John and his dad. But I think now that John is like of working age in these olden times, And his dad is like really not bringing home the bacon. And now it's becoming John's responsibility. He's finding the treasure hunting a lot less cute. Yeah, he definitely is very bitter. Um, Yes. Which is something that we experienced with Sam in the last book, being bitter about his father's kind of ties to treasure. Oh, and and also overall financial irresponsibility. Yeah. Um, So... I'm so glad you pointed that out. Um, I also want to say that I really liked using the medallion as a connection to book one. Um, But I'm going to say right off the bat that if this whole series ties the books together just by calling everyone Gates and referencing back to the medallion um, and the fact that no one can figure out the medallion, 
you know, instead of actually in the books trying to solve the medallion, that's going to bother me a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I think I, I think I could like it just being the families being passed from one to the other and, and we'll get to it, but this book definitely ends, um, not on as much of a, I mean, it it is, it's a different kind of cliffhanger. Um, but it's not as much of a cliffhanger in that in the last book, you know, we got Sam getting this medallion and being like, there's some unknown treasure. And then it like ended. Mm Mm-hmm. And here at the end of this book, we don't really get like, oh, here's this thing. There's some unknown treasure. So I'm wondering if they're just going to kind of like move on from it. I very much suspect that it's going to be the tying theme like throughout each of the books and that the intention would have been to solve the medallion in the last book. And because the last book, i.e. the sixth book doesn't exist, we're never going to get a resolution. We still could, Aubrey. We still could. Hashtag National Treasure 3. (laughs) That would be a flex if National Treasure 3 called back to these books that no one knows exists. (laughs) No one would know they were calling back to it. Except for National Treasure Hunters. Also, one other thing that's worth pointing out here that I also didn't love is that while at Paul Revere's silversmith shop, John ends up selling to revere the Freemason ring from the first book. He recognizes that it's a family heirloom, but Revere's like, I will actually give you substantial money for this. And so it really bothers me that he sold him this ring. Um, And quick callback to last episode. Do you remember my hot take where I was like, oh, this is definitely Sadusky's ring. And this means that Sadusky and Ben are related. Mm -hmm. Okay, my hot take has changed um now i'm even more convinced that this is sadusky's ring but sadusky is related to paul revere i have a theory that your hot take will change next book about who sadusky is related to but that it's still his ring um (laughs) so we'll have to see what happens Um, The thing I didn't like about the ring part, I like the fact that they brought in something else beside the medallion. Um, But I didn't like that part of John's hesitancy initially when he realizes that the ring is a family heirloom is that he's concerned about what his dad is going to think. And it's brought up once or twice throughout the book. This idea of like, oh no, what if my dad finds out? spoiler alert his dad doesn't find out (laughs) that's true (laughs) like about anything so this is where things get fun um john just finds himself following paul revere and john hancock to the boston tea party which he like accidentally ends up participating in i kind of loved it honestly (laughs) i was like this is a great way to get some actual history in here and to just throw in this guy who like could have been involved we don't know there were probably was probably a john involved was his last name gates who knows but you know well what i actually found i agree it was fun it was cute um i just thought it was funny that it like was totally an accident um what i thought was the weirdest though is that we see sort of how john ends up there and he's like ends up in a town meeting where everyone is like hyping each other up to do the to, to do the boston tea party and we literally watch john's train of thought 
go from like I don't really know what this is about to like oh yeah how dare the British do that how dare the British do this and it was just it gave me very cultish vibes <laughs> that's fair I think that that I I I'll, I won't go into it too much but I think that could be a commentary on a lot of uh mm-hmm. large large groups uh, oh yes whether for for good or bad I think there is some amount of maybe not cultish because that is like a bit of negativity associated with it but at least like some mob uh mentality mentality yeah yeah okay so now between this first chapter and the second chapter seven months pass okay and john first weird time jump i mean john is still in communication with revere and company and he now fully fledged considers himself a patriot so like fighting for the colonists cause now it turns out that his two best friends and soon to be treasure hunting companions are also patriots their names are george um george is the brawn of the group he will eventually become a Minuteman, and overall is like kind of a liability um (laughs) (laughs) i mean he almost gets in fights multiple times when it would be very like not opportune and the second friend is duncan duncan is the brains of the group now it is very unclear to me what role john plays besides being like the leader of the pack and being good at horses um but john is still the protagonist interestingly the one who's really good at solving the clues here is not the protagonist it's actually duncan it is duncan i found myself loving duncan duncan was my favorite and i would like to point out here and now that duncan and alice who throughout the whole book we're kind of like low-key dancing around each other i immediately flagged it in the beginning of the book and was like i'm calling it now it's going to be a love story they're going to get together they're getting married at the end spoiler alert nothing came of that and i was so disappointed well maybe maybe we'll see a callback next book that's all i gotta say um while we're on the subject of characters it's worth pointing out at this point that at this moment in the book and throughout the book, there is no traditional villain. There is no rival who is after the treasure, which was a very different and interesting dynamic. It was way more calming to read, definitely, definitely. <laughs> um, less stressful. Um, I will point out, though, there is an evil neighbor, Mr. Sims, who is basically peeved that John's sister wouldn't marry his the son, hashtag patriarchy. Um, but his relevance is admittedly quite minimal throughout, even at the end when he is most relevant. Um, you know, when he's most relevant, he's still not that relevant. He's still not, not that, that much relevant. of a threat. No, <laughs> not at all. Um, okay. So again, seven months after the initial contact, Paul Revere is now asking John to go to New London, Connecticut to find a man named Nathan Hale. Nathan Hale will give John a message and a person and like address to give the message to. And then John has to take the message to that person, you know, his job as like a post writer. Um, And Emily, you're laughing. I'm not sure at what. I'm going to have something else that you're probably going to laugh at in like a hot second. Okay. Um. At this point, we're like really learning a lot about like how post writing works. 
Um, mm -hmm. We get a lot of expository description about John, like selecting his favorite mare because she's super fast. And then he has to like leave her at a stable a couple towns over because she's tired, obviously. And he has to just like pick up another horse and continue. And then eventually, like at this point, I'm realizing I do not understand how this system works. They're called liveries, I believe. Oh. And like, I don't know, this is the most stressful part of the book to me. How do these liveries work? How do you make sure you get your horse back? That's a good question because, you know, like I, I was honestly, I was thinking about this as well a few times throughout the book. And there's like one option where the, the postal stop place, whatever he was calling them, like postal rest stops or whatever. They just have like <laughs> liveries. <laughs> they just have like a lineup of horses that they just keep there. And then they take your horse in and put it in the same cage or the same pen stall. that you take the same stall <laughs> that you take you take one of their horses out of to, to take on a little ride. So you come back and you're like, okay, well, this one goes back in this stall. That's my horse. Or it's literally that they have no horses there and they get their supply of horses from people dropping their horses off. <laughs> And then when somebody else comes along, like who's to say Liberty's not going to the next John Smith? Uh <laughs> oh my God. No, for sure. I mean, and the amount of time that he spent talking about how Liberty is his favorite horse and he'd be nothing without her and she's an indispensable. I'm like, he's definitely going to lose her, right? That was the most stressful part of this book to me was this, this horse sitch. Um, anyway. John accomplishes his task. He finds Nathan Hale teaching a group of quote unquote giggling girls before the school day begins because Hale's a teacher. Um, and he gives John a sealed letter to deliver to his former Yale classmate named Mr. Alden in Springfield, Massachusetts. Do you have any thoughts on the giggling girls, Em? You know, I honestly, I didn't think much about it, which is surprising. Whoa. Um, I think it's because I was just so, so pleased that there was like only one mention of Indians mm. in this book. And that was what I was trained to be like on high alert for being offensive in the last book. There was only one mention of them and like everything else wasn't like, I mean, it's probably offensive to British people, but because we see them as the bad guys it's not really offensive all the names that they call the british people so well, i was more concerned about that i will end up, i will say that this book ends up painting both the redcoats and the patriots in not great lights at different mm -hmm. times which was also pretty balanced and i appreciate it mm -hmm. but i was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that because you know it was really cool nathan hale really did believe in the education of, of women and so he would like teach them before the boys that actually attended the school like got to school in the morning even so they're characterized as like fawning over him and the implication is they're like more there because he's an attractive young man as opposed to like getting an education anyway i guess i'm the patriarchy one today but anyway john once again completes his task and uh goes to springfield finds mr alden who just so happened to be freshly stabbed by the 
regulars, redcoats, loyalists, sort of synonymous. I, the redcoats are like the actual soldiers. The regulars, I think, are also the soldiers. The loyalists are the colonists who are loyal to the British. Uh, Alden was stabbed by the regulars simply for being a patriot. And again, we don't get into super political conversations on this podcast for many reasons, but I will say that comment as well as a reference in this part of the book about how British soldiers had, quote, fired upon a rioting crowd and killed five colonists, unquote, during the Boston Massacre. Like, these um, these two lines really hit differently right now. Did you catch that? Oh, yeah. Um, I caught it. I had feelings. Um, I was like, this is not unlike today. And uh, without going too much into it, I would just like to say that I think this is, whether intentional or not, I think it's a commentary on how when there are two very polarized groups of people, uh, just how riled up and kind of not really, uh, not really leading their actions with their brain uh, people, people can get. Well, well said there. Um. <laughs> Um, for those of you who are listening, there was, there's a good chunk of time that Emily just cut out of there because she couldn't figure out what she wanted to say, but she finally did. And I think, and when I did, it wasn't great. Well, but we understand what you mean for sure. Anyway, let's get back. Let's get back away from the social commentary to the book at hand. The dying Mr. Alden tells John to open the letter and basically take on its mission to benefit the Patriot cause because, again, Alden is dying. Um, Alden says that John should follow the clues and, quote, put the heat on the loyalists, end quote. That will be important. John finds that the letter contains the Ben Franklin cartoon called Join or Die, and underneath the cartoon is a message. It reads... Well, I guess I should, before I actually read it, let's preface this by saying the first of a bajillion messages that are going to be shared in this um, book, and this is one instance where a purely audio-based medium is not great because I want to, like, write them down for you, Um, but anyway. too many. There's so many. The first one, here it is. Word from S.A. The time seems close at hand. Follow this to the treasure we shall require for liberty to triumph. So now, one of the things I'm going to do here, um, I felt like every, almost every single one of these clues had one element that was really obvious, and then the rest was like very challenging. So whenever I found the obvious one, I'm going to say it and see if you also picked up on it, because I'm curious. So for me, I read this and I was like, okay, obviously, S.A. is Sam Adams. No idea. Cool. Okay. Our brains work very differently. Anyway. (laughs) I was like, "Mm, this is a stumper. (laughs) Well, that's because there's more to the clue, which we'll see in just a second. But right off the bat, we have started our treasure hunt as we often do with a very amorphous clue that really doesn't tell us what we're trying to find. Um, Even the implication is a little unclear. Like, is the implication that treasure is required for freedom? Is treasure required for war? Like, what is requ- what is required here? I just, like, and this is going to come up in a little bit again, but the fact that this is being left to one person to do to solve these clues when it is something that is apparently, like, 
such a big will be such a big deal for the patriot cause it seems like if people are as scared as they were at this time about like britain about going to war with uh the british you would think you'd put like all your best people on this and like that was the consistently throughout the book john is always like oh maybe i should ask someone no i would probably be bothering them and then like even when he does ask Paul Revere is like, eh, that's not really my place. And then eventually he does help, so it's like weird, but it, it just like, you would think that everybody would be working on this to find the treasure. And yeah. I use treasure in quotation marks because for a reason we'll see later. Right. I mean, yes. Um, you're totally right, though. And it's, I think it's extra funny because Alden is dying and his response is, you. 17 year old I've never met before it is clearly your job now to solve this very important treasure hunt it's not like oh go take it back to Nathan Hale or like you know so anyway I agree it's funny anyway John Duncan and, and George they're fools they almost burn the letter by accident and it's through that one moment of serendipity that they realize that heat makes more writing show up i.e we have a nice invisible ink callback here it's not a callback it's just like i see the parallel to national treasure immediately mm-hmm. obviously and they do notice that like oh alden's dying words put the heat on the loyalists that was supposed to indicate that we needed heat to see the rest of the clue which like hats off to alden for being that composed as he was dying to be like, oh yeah, let me remember to give you this clue. Seriously, that's a and not really to be like, yo, put it over a flame. Honestly, why didn't he just say that? He'd already told John, like, do the job, carry out the quest. He could have been a little nicer and like made this easier for him. Anyway, upon heating, a new messenger is visible. And that new message reads, <clears throat> Poor Richard wrought the governor's shame when one man's true sentiments did inflame. Spy ye one, tis not the same, whence to all patriots such news came. Can I make a suggestion? Please. Um, I think that because there are so many uh, clues that we will encounter over the next 30 minutes or so, um, I think that every time you read one of the clues, uh, you should read it in a British accent. I am absolutely not doing that. Okay, then I should read it in a British accent. All right. Would you like to read this one in a British accent? No, we already did this one. I'll I'll, I'll get the next one. Okay, great. Well, my obvious point in this one was like, okay, poor Richard. This is obviously Benjamin Franklin. I I knew poor Richard and poor Richard's almanac didn't know Ben Franklin wrote it. We've literally talked about that on another episode and our book. I my memory okay fine well again this is one little piece of the clue and then there's like a lot more right so duncan says that the quote governor's shame refers to something called the hutchinson letters affair which is when ben franklin was involved with governor hutchinson's private letters being leaked and these letters were like asking for more british soldiers soldiers to keep the colonists in line and it was like this whole scandal um and then alice who is involved 
in the treasure hunt, but only from like an intellectual in the home standpoint, hashtag patriarchy. Well, I yes, guess- but also that she was involved from an intellectual standpoint good. is is good. It is good. It is good. But like she can't go on any aspect of the hunt with them. No, they like the two things cancel each other out. Ultimately, it's like <laughs> you might as well have not really had a female character here. Right. 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 Here we go. OK, Alice says that the true sentiments line refers to a book called The True Sentiments of America, which was written by a bunch of people, but part of it by Samuel Adams, S.A., from the original clue. And Sam Adams was apparently rumored to be the one responsible for the Hutchinson letters being published in the Boston Gazette. Now, all of this, that was a lot, All of this leads John to decide that the full message leads to the Boston Gazette building itself because of the clues reference to the word news. How did they get building? Yeah, as opposed to like an issue of the newspaper. Or just like, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I I don't know. You can't think there and they were just like, oh, building. Gotta be it. They're right. So their intuition worked. That's true. It's right. So it doesn't matter at you can't think about this too hard. I mean, you just got to be impressed by like how much history was packed into two lines of a clue um, and then go on your merry way reading. So at the Boston Gazette building, they use the clue that read. Well, you have to read it. Yeah, I'm ready. By ye want is not the same. (laughs) This is going to be great. They use that part of the clue to identify a single shingle on the building that is a different color from the rest. And behind that shingle is a snuff box containing a key, like a physical silver key, and a message. Mr. Livingston, Roxbury, Vox, Clamantis, in Deserto. I don't know what the Latin English mashup there was, but I really enjoyed it. Anyway, before solving this clue, um, a couple key expository things end up happening that are worth mentioning. Number one, the colonial militia called the Minutemen begins to form and George joins. Um, And number two, Mr. Sims, remember the evil neighbor? He leads the charge in tarring and feathering a neighbor kid for really no real reason except for just thinking that the neighbor kid might be a loyalist. This reminded me of a scene from a show that used to be on PBS called Liberty Kids. Liberty Kids! Yeah. I I feel like I would know the song if I heard like a second of it and I'd be able to sing it, but I can't place it right now. But there was an episode of Liberty Kids where they saw someone being tarred and feathered and I remember it really disturbed me and then I read this and was like oh Liberty Kids well this really disturbed me for two real reasons number one there's definitely like a moral ambiguity and like a group think mentality on display for the Patriots here Mm -hmm. you know like because they're just like one person clearly was like oh I think he's a loyalist and then they all just went along with it and basically tortured the kid um so that was the first time here where I thought like this moral ambiguity on the part of the patriots was shown there's gonna be a lot more of that for the loyalists down the line but at least there's some semblance of like evenness here yeah The, the bigger reason I was like oof was because John and his dad were very clearly bothered by the fact that this 
neighbor kid was being tarred and feathered and they like said so to the to mr sims and the group yet they do absolutely nothing to intervene despite their objections they literally just walk away as it's happening and as ben gates would say it means if you have the ability to take action you have the responsibility to take action that one that one (laughs) (laughs) and you're the quotes queen what um anyway let's get off of that disturbingness and um actually translate this clue so duncan once again the intellectual one he translates the latin to mean one voice crying in the wilderness and then john realizes that the latin version of this phrase is actually the motto of dartmouth college in new hampshire yeah they're throwing around a lot of ivy league college names here so john basically decides that there's no way this treasure hunt would actually lead them to New Hampshire. That's weird, right? Instead, the reference to Dartmouth must be relevant to the Dartmouth ship. Now, the Dartmouth ship was one of the ships that, like, the Boston Tea Partiers climbed onto to knock all of the tea overboard. Crazy how that worked. I guess. I mean, I also, I'm not very good at geography, but I do feel like New Hampshire and Massachusetts aren't that far away. So like, why did we discount the New Hampshire connection so quickly? Yeah. And I love that all of the, all of the clues, like, I mean, it's far away for them because they're riding on horses, but all of the clues end up leading to like the same little area. And it's like, when you find one that's slightly outside of that radius, it's like, "Mm, Lord knows that can't be it. Yeah, that's a good point. Anyway, John does go to Roxbury, Massachusetts. Again, that's part of the clue next to the name Mr. Livingston. And he finds Mr. Livingston, who apparently owns like a shop in town. And is living and well. Yes, indeed. Now, John goes to the shop and decides that like the Latin phrase from the clue is a secret password. And he repeats the phrase to Livingston who's like yep that was the password and he takes him to the back of the shop to like peruse at his leisure now I'll admit it's not like the book was like oh obviously this is a password John was like portrayed as being very nervous and unsure and it just so happened that his guess that this was a password was correct but it is kind of funny how it just like first try always works in these books well and the fact that like the first time he said it the guy was like i'm sorry my boy what and then he was like let me just say the same exact thing again yeah and maybe he'll get it this and like he did yeah but it's risky strategy so in this room at the back of the shop john sees like one box among many boxes um but this one box is distinct because it is labeled davison newman and company and this was the company whose boxes were on board the dartmouth during the boston tea party which again john knows firsthand because he accidentally partook now remember how there was a silver key in with that last clue oh i remember that silver key is now used to open this box, which contains a slip of paper that reads, Those initial massacred five shall help we patriots shift and thrive. And Emily's beautiful British uh, reading um, was beautiful, but um, I didn't write down the actual end of the clue, which is a cipher. Um, love to see it. You love- I got super, super excited. 
love to see. Actually, it was in this book where ciphers are used a couple of times that I realized just how much I've learned about ciphers in the past two years. Because, I was like, oh, this might be this cipher. Same. I was like, oh, this is a substitution cipher. This is a book cipher. Like, and it never said that in the book. Um, so I was a little proud of myself. But anyway, Emily, did you get the obvious clue bit here? This is the Boston Massacre. I honestly didn't know what that was. Cool. Okay. So anyway, um, when discussing the cipher text um, between the friends, they're trying to figure out like, how are we going to crack this thing? I will mention right off the bat that they just so happened to mention the Viganair cipher. Love which, to see it. Love to see it. All y'all will know that this is an indirect reference to National Treasure 2. Uh, Viganair ciphers were not used in National Treasure 2, but um, a real the real Viganair table was likely inspiration for a plot point in National Treasure 2. Go back and listen to past episodes if you missed that or wait for our book. Um, so it's at this point that Alice notices all the clues so far have really involved Patriot persons and matters and even Patriot recent events to really ensure that only a Patriot could solve them. Um, I would argue anyone with a local newspaper could probably solve them, but in this case, um, it's supposed to be only patriots. But this is important. This is like going to be the key to cracking the codes that the rest of the book, you have to think if you're John, like, okay, how does this relate to a patriot thing? And that'll be important. And actually gives us a little bit more context for like these clues, solving these clues being like realistic. Yes, de definitely. It became more realistic. I I say that lightly, but it became slightly more realistic after this moment. Right, exactly. So it turns out that the group agrees with me that Initial Massacred Five refers to the five colonists killed in the Boston Massacre. And the word initial um, in that clue refers to the fact that it is the initials of those five, like the initials of the names of those five colonists that will be needed to crack what is effectively a substitution cipher. And that new message reads, Copper Grasshopper sees pain in Eastbourne Breeze, or Brez, as it's actually spelled, but it's Breeze. Yeah, it's just not spelled right. Anyway, um, this is one that John cracks immediately, honestly, so fast that we don't even see him riddling through. We see the aftermath of like, he cracked it, he went and got the next thing. And this is the explanation. The explanation mm -hmm. is Fenoy Hall. I don't actually know what that is, but Fenoy Hall apparently has a copper grasshopper weather vane. So this clue was not very creative. Um, he decided that the weather vane would point to the next clue in a westward direction because remember it basically says in the clue like there's an eastborne breeze so if there's a, a a wind coming from the east it's going to point the arrow of the weather vane west or i guess the arrow is the grasshopper so what are we looking for if there is a wind blowing from east to west emily probably a box <laughs> No, actually, we need to figure out where the box will be. And it turns out that, but actually, we don't even know if there's a box. They didn't tell us. 
<laughs> there, was a, there were a lot of boxes. There were a lot book. of boxes. At one point, he literally thinks, I don't think he says it out loud, but he thinks like, oh, what am I looking for? I'm looking for either a box or a piece of white paper. And I was just like, yep, because that's what all the clues have been. Hey, that's realistic. And we, we like to see it. Okay. No, in this case, we need to find a pane, a window pane. Okay. And that's where we find the clue. It's unclear if like the clue is etched into the window pane or like tucked into the window pane or a in a box stuck in the middle of the window pane. Emily, what is that next clue that they found on the window pane? <laughs> in Dorchester, there is enclosed a message meant for all of those within who the thirst for liberty grows, much like the roots of the fairest rose. You would think it would be easier to say because it all rhymes, but it made it harder. Well, at this point, I'm like annoyed by two things. Number one, this is like a very childish rhyme. And number two, um, every single time there's a new clue, there's been at least five clues already. There's a character, usually the least intellectually gifted one, i.e. George, believes they're just immediately going to find the treasure next. It's like you get a clue, you're going to find another piece of paper. You get another clue, you're going to find another piece of paper. Not the Maybe treasure. Maybe in a box. Maybe, probably in a box. Anyway, this clue obviously says Dorchester. So they decide they have to go to Dorchester. And in the process, they decide to visit Paul Revere. One of these instances that Emily mentions where like, we're actually going to tell him what's going on and he's going to be not super useful. In this case, um, Revere, they, they're asking him like, hey, dude, what are we actually trying to find here? And Revere's like, yeah, good question. Like, all I know is that whatever the treasure is, it was hidden by the Lenonian Society at Yale in case tensions between patriots and loyalists eventually led to war. And like, how did this come together? I actually really appreciated this exposition. Apparently, Nathan Hale was a member of this society and was given the first clue since he was such a staunch patriot. Now, for security reasons, each clue was said to be set up by a different member of the society. Now, this explains a couple of things to me. Number one, it explains why every time we see a clue in the book, it's written in a different font. Yes. Yes. Um, it also explains to me why the tone of each clue is different. Like, for example, the last one was super childish and some of the other ones were like very eloquent, etc. Um, this also makes me think that like the relationship between Hale and the Lenonian Society is a lot like the relationship between C Charles Carroll of Carrollton and the Freemasons at the beginning of National Treasure. Like this one person is entrusted with the one clue and, you know, everything else is kind of um, going downhill from here. But Emily, this realization actually made me come up with a question that we haven't thought about before related to actual National Treasure. What's that? Okay, so I thought about each clue being set up by a different member of the society as being maybe like the first national treasure. Remember, you know, Ben Franklin is clearly responsible for all the Philadelphia portions, like mm -hmm. other people are responsible for other portions, whatever. But that then made me think like, is that the case in National Treasure 2? But remember how the president's secret book said, like says something like, you know, contact with Laboulet who will hide the clues before his death? Mm-hmm. Does that mean that Laboulet was responsible for all the clues? Like their placements? Sounds like it. Which is huge, if that's the case. Huge if true. Huge if true. Yeah, we're going to have to think more about that. Um, it's either true or the statement in the president's secret book is false. 
let's continue. We still have several more clues to get to. <laughs> <laughs> so we're in Dorchester now, right? And this is also probably the simplest reveal of a clue to go along with the simple writing of the clue. So at least that's consistent. They basically see in Dorchester a picket fence painted like the Sons of Liberty's flag, which I don't know. I don't know what that flag looks like, but I would assume that's pretty obvious. Whatevs. Um, apparently there's a rose bush by this um, fence. And lucky no one cut that down. Yeah, it's a good point. Very good point. Um, ultimately, there's like this whole big drama that happens in this scene where the um, the regulars, the redcoats are chasing them and John breaks his leg in this whole diversion that he, you know, sets up so that his friends can escape. Ultimately, everything is fine. And what they found at the rose bush was a box <gasps> with a note. <gasps> and that shocker reads we are eight strong our voices blend in song if ye wish our secret free our kin's verse holds the key be of independent mind out from our door direction find so um now i'm wondering if this idea of emily reading the clues in a british accent was a good idea because i do want the listeners to like un like hear the clue and like understand the words so that they can kind of follow along um anyway at this point in the book that feels like an insult to me <laughs> it's a little hard to understand in the most entertaining way possible <laughs> So at this point in the book, I'm kind of wishing the clues were a little bit more National Treasure-esque and that the audience like has any hope of solving them at all mm. or like puzzling along with the characters as opposed to just like blankly um, trusting that the characters are right. I will say for this one, I did not try to solve most of the clues because I was like, it's going to be solved in like a minute. It like, I don't need to try but this one, I was like, I'm going to try and solve this. And when they said, <laughs> out of all the ones. Of today, all of them. <laughs> okay, well, to be fair, I was only going to try and solve one part of it. And it was our voices blend in song. And then it said, our kin's verse holds the key. Now, Francis Scott Key wrote the national anthem. And our voices blend in song could be a reference to the national anthem. Now, understandably... I was not thinking about the temporal nature of when that song would have come out, but I thought I had it on lock. I was like, I am, I am Ben Gates up in this house. I have this. It is amazing. Wait till Aubrey hears. And then, you know, it wasn't right. Well, you know what? You weren't thinking about the temporal nature. Guess what? Neither was the writer. <laughs> because we've oh. got a, we've got a plot hole here. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. So. Here comes the most, one of the most tenuous clue solvings in this whole entire book. The word independent in the clue is capitalized. We like to do that a lot in this book and in National Treasure. Um, apparently, the capital independent meant the old state house bell, also known as the Independence Bell in Independence Hall. But that's wrong. I cannot get past this because it wasn't called the Independence Bell until after the Declaration of Independence was signed there. So if that's of interest to you, go back and listen to episode 30 of our podcast featuring Bill Coughlin from Independence National Historical Park. But as we know, we're nowhere close to the Declaration of Independence being signed yet. 
in this story because the Revolutionary War hasn't even started yet. That is something that bothers me a lot. But for the purposes of this book, we're talking about the Independence Bell. This discussion of a bell makes them think that eight and voices blend in song as like two separate phrases refer to the eight bells atop Christ Church in Boston. And then the Kins verse line was said to apply, wait for it, back to the independence bell and its inscriptions of Leviticus 2510. Just like how? So I actually really liked the use of the inscription here. I still can't get over the temporal inaccuracy. And then also, this is just a lot of a stretch. I mean, I guess they didn't immediately think to go to Philadelphia for the same reason they didn't think to go to New Hampshire earlier. Yeah, they were like, that's too far. It can't be it. But then somehow they still thought that Philadelphia was relevant. It's just like, I don't know. I found this to be quite a stretch. Um, Our protagonists go to Christ Church, convinced of their eight bells theory. And they decide, this is another good one. Emily, I can't wait to hear your reaction to this. That to solve the clue, they have to start at the door of Christ Church. Recall in the clue, it says out from our door direction find. So they start at the door and they have to count 25 bricks in one direction and 10 in another direction to go along with the Leviticus 2510. And which direction, you may ask, Emily? Well, obviously the direction is left because Leviticus starts with an L. I want to know how they decided to start by counting horizontally and then went up. Because my thought process was to start going vertically and then go horizontally. Why would you think to do this to begin with? I mean, great. In any direction. If we're here, if we're here and we have (laughs) thought about it. Yeah. Um, Anyway. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the clues are both a bit more complex and more of a stretch. Then in book one of this series, which is saying a little bit of something, because some of those book one clues were a bit of a stretch. And these clues are also basically all riddles, which is much more like national treasure itself. True. Now, we get a nice national treasure callback or, or nod here, because after they count 2510, they pull a brick out of the building. Also, it's really cute because not only is that like what they do in National Treasure, but they do that in National Treasure at Independence Hall, which was affiliated with this clue. Yeah. When they started counting bricks, I was like, I really hope they need to take a brick out of yeah. the wall. <laughs> well, I'm really impressed by the continuity with National Treasure and like those cute nods. So well done, Catherine Hapka. Um, they once again find a box. The box contains a note. We have been unfairly stumped by royal decree. A cipher true to thee and me. And then there's a series of Roman numerals and numbers. Now, my big moment here, Emily, uh, this is obviously a reference to the Stamp Act. Nah. You didn't get that? Okay. I don't know what the Stamp Act is. Like, oh, for five. (laughs) My history wasn't great. Um, So, One thing I'll mention is as they start riddling out this clue, we do start seeing John for the first time question um, the doubts that he had about his father liking treasure hunting. Um, We also see him starting to have sympathy for his father. 
And there's a great line here that I thought was a good message for like a middle school audience, which we think these books are for. Um, there was a line where John was like talking about how the Gates family name is still tarnished because of his father's treasure hunting. Um, so he's like, or had John merely listened too much to what other people thought? That is a good middle school hammer home that lesson piece for sure. This is the, the clue they had the least success solving, which I thought was really strange because they got to a lot more tenuous places with a lot less effort for other clues. Um, but they eventually get to the correct key text, which was um, a document that was written by patriots in response to the Stamp Act, and sections of that document were labeled with Roman numerals. So basically, they have to go to that section of the document and then count the number of words into the section. But anyway, when they decode it, we get yet another clue. The House of Prosperity by Commons within center realm therein subject is crown. Did you get Boston Commons out of this, M? like I did? Nope, but I saw the prosperity was capitalized. This is reminding me of the moment when Ian is like, why is this capitalized? And his henchmen are like, because it's important. And Ian's like, because it's a name. We go to Boston in the book again. Um, we once again confide in Paul Revere, who happens to have John Hancock, Sam Adams, and like other friends at hand. Um, and these folks actually help them solve the clue. They... Um, the older men tell John and company that Prosperity is in fact the name of a young woman. Her name is Miss Prosperity Latham. She's a patriot who lives with her loyalist family in a home near Boston Commons. And they believe the clue means um, that whatever the next clue is lies somewhere at the center of the house, recall, within center realm, and that the location of the clue would be indicated by some sort of crown symbology, again, because the clue says crown. And the ease of which this clue was solved makes me think, why haven't we been doing this and outsourcing some of the work the whole time? Well, not only is that like a really logical question to ask here, but something else that Mr. Alden said as he was dying, I'm if I remember correctly, is, you know, share what you find on this treasure hunt with the Patriots. And so why weren't we sharing with more Patriots throughout? Anyway, um, so basically John um, stalks Prosperity outside of her home and Prosperity explains that a neighbor of hers, Robert, one was going to Yale and would come back and visit his family often. Um, Robert was probably part of the Lenonian society and prosperity offered to hide something for him behind um, a sampler of King George in the central room of the house. Um, I'm pretty sure, you know what a sampler is? It's like a, like a, um, like not crocheted. Cross stitch? Kind of. Yeah. Like a cross stitch um, type of thing. And so prosperity helps uh, John and whoever's with him at the time, I don't remember if it's George or Duncan, doesn't matter. Um, she helps them disguise as wait staff um, at like a party her family is hosting. And they retrieve the clue from behind the sampler, which is marked with a, a crown because it's, you know, King George. And the clue reads, Here liberty grows in Blackston's home. Very quick and to the point. We love to see it. Um, We're getting near the end. We got to start wrapping up these clues. They get faster. The pacing of this book is just like the first one. Um, 
Duncan decides that Blackston refers to William Blackston, an original Boston settler from the 1620s, but stupidly, Blackston's home seems to only refer to Boston as like a city, um, not like actually his house. So they could have been like literally anyone who lives in Boston's home, I guess. Um, but more importantly, where Liberty grows or like here Liberty grows refers to Boston's Liberty tree, which is sort of like a community message board. And apparently there were these Liberty trees in a lot of towns. So they go to the tree and like up in the branches, they find a silver box. And this immediately reminds me of geocaching. And also what is preventing other people from just finding a silver box in a tree and taking it doesn't seem very well hidden. Whatevs, they find a new clue in the box. Find ye my sister, like the colonel's good Nelson, in the place of our first covenant. I don't really know what happened to my accent in that one, but... It was plainly enjoyable. Um, Okay, so to solve this clue, one day John just happens to decide to tell the clue to a livery acquaintance of his, who reveals himself to be a patriot. Bold move. Yeah, now that we've invited one person in, we're inviting them all inviting him we never met this guy before we might have but he like wasn't important so this um other patriot tells john that nelson and colonel must refer to george washington's favorite chestnut colored horse named nelson in addition duncan decides that the word sister refers to another town's liberty tree because I mean, cool. That's it's kind of a callback to like the the Statue of Liberty clue from National Treasure Two, and there's like another one, but whatever. Um, and the Nelson comment must mean that the tree is a chestnut tree because, of course, it does. So, which town's tree? Well, let's look back at our clue. Yeah, yeah. At this point, they say they decide that like the fir- our first covenant line refers to the Mayflower Compact like from the, the pilgrimage. Um, and so the Mayflower Compact was signed in Plymouth. So we are going to the Plymouth Liberty tree. And once again, in the tree, they find another silver box, very poorly hidden. And this is a long one, go. If ye be one of Bar's boys, know ye the name of Maryland's first citizen. His father's appellation, from here shall help ye reach the mark as the sun rises to shine upon the glory of this patriot's land. Yeah, I have no idea what you're doing anymore. Um, <laughs> I don't either. It's, it's slipping. Okay, well, p- please tell me you got Charles Carroll of Carrollton out of this clue. No, his name wasn't said. Well, Emily clearly hasn't read the first draft of our book that we've written together. I did! Because we discuss how Charles Carroll of Carrollton used the pseudonym First Citizen in a bunch of spirited written newspaper debates in Maryland. So I did sound familiar. I admittedly only know this because of the book, but I was very happy about it. Um, Duncan, however, immediately knows that Isaac Barre is a member of parliament who opposes taxation of the colonies. It is very unclear to me why this is relevant literally at all, because doesn't play to solving the clue at all right just threw it in yeah like it was i just i'm still lost about that if anyone read this book and can understand that please let me know um but more importantly duncan also reveals that charles carroll of carrollton is first citizen 
This is a beautiful parallel, not only to the use of Charles Carroll in National Treasure, but also the relevance of a pseudonym, right? We got Silence mm-hmm. Do Good is our, is our favorite pseudonym. Now, Emily, I suspect you really enjoyed the piecing together of this one. I did. You did? Oh, I thought you were going to hate it because of where, what it ends up being. Okay. Well, basically John realizes that because Charles Carroll of Carrollton is Catholic, the reference to his father could refer to the Pope that was in power when the clues were made. And that Pope was Clement the 14th. And maybe this could actually tell us if we Google Clement the 14th, we could find out like when these clues were written anyway. I thought you were going to be annoyed at the fact that they decide this means they have to go back to the Plymouth Liberty tree and count 14 paces from the tree. And that's like how you solve the clue. Let's just ignore literally all three other lines in that clue and just take Pope Clement the 14th, the number 14, and all of a sudden we're back in paces again. Those of you who listened to our last episode will remember that Emily and I were very annoyed at the fact that we just assumed we needed to take a certain number of paces at a certain point in the book to find the treasure. What I will say is that I found it kind of funny because there was a lot of mention uh, throughout the book about like needing to get home at various points because no one was really supposed to be away except for John because he was like assumingly delivering post um and when they found the previous clue rather than stay there and try to decipher it they left and went home and deciphered it and if only they had stayed there they would have just been able to walk 14 paces which i do agree is ridiculous how we got there but they didn't so they had to ride all the way back and come up with another excuse to leave and it just it, I found that honestly very entertaining. yeah and I mean that's one of the reasons why John has to go back by himself because like the others like cannot get out again um exposition wise though it's going to be important to note that at this point in time patriot loyalist tensions are super high and like war is about to break out so they really got the timing correct on like solving these clues they didn't find it too early not too late very Goldilocks you know mm-hmm. just right that's right Um, So John does go back to Plymouth and he counts 14 paces east because the clue said as the sun rises. Um, And this leads him to a cave. And it's really hard to imagine he didn't see a cave just 14 feet away before. (laughs) Um, They made it sound like it was well hidden. Do you know how short of a distance 14 feet is? He moved some stuff. It might have just looked like a pile of stuff. Like rocks? Yeah. With a crevice. That no, you could fit it was lo- covered by like some brush and stuff. Okay, the f- I would agree with you if we're talking like eagle around the Mount Rushmore crevice, you know, in National Treasure too. If we're talking like that size crevice here, oh, but it, yeah, it had to be a big crevice because inside da, 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 the da, da, da. cave. Inside the cave, there are apparently multiple trunks full of gunpowder and muskets and pistols and bullet molds and powder horns and all kinds of other weaponry. Um, Yeah. I would like to say that I was not pleased by this. Um, And then I remembered the fact that in the last book, we had found something that wasn't quite a traditional treasure. Um, and 
inside that traditional treasure they found the gold ring so i was like okay well i'm disappointed that this is just chest of spoiler alert gunpowder um maybe there will be something hidden in the gunpowder <laughs> spoiler alert there wasn't it was no. just gunpowder and i felt like honestly like this reminded me of remember when we were watching the lost symbol together and i was explaining to you that at the end the treasure was just a bible yeah and you were so disappointed by that i was like this is how aubrey must have felt oh yeah emily you're not alone because john like sam in book one is slightly disappointed to have not found like a traditional treasure once again we had gotten references to like cibola apparently all the protagonists are like in these books are fascinated by cibola which is whatever fair fair um but John does come to his senses and realizes that the treasure will, quote, help the patriots should their quest for independence lead to war, end quote. Um, and because the book still has a few chapters left, uh, before John can actually do anything about this discovery of his, he learns that evil neighbor, Mr. Sims, has casually accused his dad, Thomas, of treason, um, mostly because Alice, Thomas's daughter, has been cavorting with the Redcoats. No one knows, though, that she's been doing this uh, to spy on them. They assume that she's a traitor. And well, some people know, because the Minutemen then come and help. And yeah. Like, oh yeah, Alice has been telling me stuff. No, for sure. I mean, John knows too. But the point is, she's been keeping it a secret for reasons like from it's. She's been keeping it secret from the Patriots for reasons I don't fully understand. Um, but because of her apparent treason, her father is going to hang for it. Um, and so because I would like to say because there's no real villain in this book, this little conflict at the end feels very abrupt. Oh um, yeah. It felt like we needed to kind of put something in there. It's it's kind of like it's kind of like a national treasure too when we find the treasure, but we still have to escape Cibola. Like we still have to deal with Mitch somehow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I'm feeling here. But it also kind of brings in the save the family theme quite literally. True. Um, because John now has to race back to Concord and somehow save his dad. Although in reality, like you said, it's the Minutemen who save the dad by vouching for him and for Alice. Um, and then we have a surprise villain. Like literal came out of nowhere surprise villain. <laughs> Duncan's father. Because John has to tell someone about the treasure because he's about to pass out from exhaustion. So he tells the nearest person to him who is Duncan's father. Now, immediately I'm like, ooh, bold choice because everything you've said about Duncan's father up until this point made me think Duncan's father was a loyalist. Right. Because apparently he really didn't like Duncan hanging out with John and George and like the Patriot cause and blah, blah, blah. But the reason, the real reason Duncan's dad is is a, a villain, low-key, is because Duncan's dad takes credit for the treasure yeah now this is low-key in my opinion a great parallel to mitch's villain motive in national treasure too like he just really what i thought of yeah like he really wants credit like family name kind of thing Mm -hmm. um and the worst part of this you expect this sort of wrong to be righted in a children's book like this why why would it be aubrey well it's not exactly (laughs) when john finally tells his dad about the treasure hunt his dad is like super proud and basically says don't worry about getting credit 
Um, and literally right after that point, it's suddenly all the British are coming, the British are coming, and the book is over. I okay, that ending, the whole ending was a whole thing. The the fact that we brought Duncan's dad into the picture, the fact that John's dad was like, Oh, don't worry about taking credit for the treasure when I'm like literally part of National Treasure was that Ben wanted credit yeah. for finding the treasure. So like doesn't make sense that the Gates family doesn't want credit for this. Also, it could like bring some good good sentiment to your name. But then also we just like casually like get the British are coming, the British are coming, which from the beginning I was like, Oh, midnight ride. That's yeah. what this must be. And then when he had to ride when John had to ride back in the middle of the night to get back to his dad, I was like, oh, this must be the midnight ride that they're referring to. And then they threw the actual midnight ride in there. And then I turned the page to read the next chapter and it was blank because the book was over. Yeah, the ending of this book was like so much and so little at the same time. <laughs> and I know for a fact it's not, the next one is not going to pick up from that moment. Exactly, which like, is we why- know what happens, but- <laughs> Yeah, the implication is that John's going to fight at, like, the battles of Lexington and Concord that, like, launched the Revolutionary War. Um, and so, yeah, that is Midnight Ride. Um, so, in the last episode, we kind of wrapped up with me and my little thesis on, like, the book structure and kind of predicting how this was going to go. And so now I've decided this is just going to be a thing. Okay. Um, so, I would love to hear your thoughts. Mine are really that overall the first book's clues were like way more symbol based and book two is way more riddle based. I personally liked the riddle based version better, but only probably because it paralleled national treasure better. Um, and also because, you know, remember the last book we really criticized, it felt like a lot of them quote unquote solving these symbols and clues was like very luck based mm -hmm. this time around because of the riddles that it required much more skill. True. Um, I did find that the pacing of this book was very similar to the first one with a lot happening at the end. However, the ending was incredibly anticlimactic. Mm -hmm. um, this did make me realize like, yep, definitely going to a different generation of Gates each time we read one of these books. So I was wondering, Em, if you had any predictions on the next time period we're going to tackle in book three. Mapping of America? Yeah, maybe like Westward Expansion or something. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'm still really conflicted about like how these books start overlapping with time periods that we see in National Treasure movies, you know? Mm. So like if we go past, if we go past in these last two books, Charles Carroll of Carrollton's death. I mean, there's a train on the cover of yeah. one of the books so we will well it's really gonna bother me then because like how do you do that without referencing what we see in the movie maybe we will anyway we'll find out find out very soon um and my last overarching thought is like i said at the beginning are we really just going to keep referencing back to book one's wooden medallion are we ever going to see anything come of that no <laughs> she says so assuredly i don't think we will um, yeah, I, like I said in the beginning, I really liked this book. Um, something that I did notice that I wanted to mention was the fact that because there were so many clues, I like grew tired of them. And something mm. that I always felt like with the National Treasure 
movies as a whole is like, oh, I love the treasure hunting aspect of this. So, and I always want the story to keep going. But then I realized that like, maybe I don't want the story to keep going. Like maybe I do want it to have like a quicker end so that there are just like fewer, fewer clues, but that I feel more involved in like solving them rather than like all the answers just being like told to me. Yeah, I think that's a really, that's a really good point. I, I found also a little bit of fatigue in this. Maybe it's also, maybe you want like a mix of the symbols and the riddles and not just like, I think that is what I prefer. Yeah. Yeah. Not like one or the other. We'll have to see what happens in the next book, which is what, Aubrey? It is Uncharted, A Gates Family Mystery by Katherine Hapka and published by Disney Press. This is book number three in this series. And we're very excited to bring you yet another book breakdown. But before we do that, we, of course, need to hear all of your thoughts about Midnight Ride and also about this series in general. I mean, we're officially halfway through. What are you thinking? You can tell us this and more on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. We're also available to listen to on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever your ears find their pods. Um, and go ahead, like, subscribe, rate, review, do whatever you can on those various platforms. Let us know you're listening. Give us your thoughts. And Aubrey? Yeah, so I think that's going to wrap it up for today. We're really excited to have you join us for our next episode when we break down Uncharted, not the movie, but the book. That's going to get really confusing if we, spoiler alert, do an episode on Uncharted the movie later this season. (laughs) But hey, until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our national treasure hunt. (laughs) 